The time of spreadsheets is over. A Google search, a passport scan, a barcode reading in a supermarket, your online shopping history, an EKG reading, CCTV footage, a photo of a sandwich, a voice message, a tweet. All of these contain data that can be collected, analyzed, and monetized. Supercomputers and algorithms allow us to make sense of increasingly larger amounts of information in real time. In less than 10 years, CPUs are expected to reach the processing power of the human brain. Big data. It's one of those terms that's far more widely used than it is understood. Companies are already making big claims about what they're doing with data, but what does that mean for the rest of us? And what will it mean for the world of work? Hi, my name is Will Brett. I'm Director of News and Media at the New Economics Foundation, and I'm filling in for Aisha, who's back next week. We're making up for Aisha's absence with a special episode and a very special guest, political economist Will Davies, who is director of the Political Economy Research Centre and a senior lecturer at Goldsmiths University in London. Will is a brilliant scholar and one of those people you just have to read whenever something big and surprising happens in politics or the economy. And let's face it, we've had a few surprises in recent times. If you haven't seen his articles written in the immediate aftermath of the Brexit vote last year, I urge you to do so. But here at the New Economics Foundation, we've been particularly interested in Will's work on big data. A lot of people are excited about it, but few see the bigger picture as clearly as our special guest today. I can tell you who your best customers are. I can discover the latest market trends, identify a stolen credit card. I can even uncover manufacturing defects and tell you how to fix them. Hey, I'm big data. So we're very happy to welcome Will Davies to the podcast today for a longer chat than usual on those very subjects. Hello, Will. Hi. So could we start just by being clear about what we mean by big data? What is it and why is it so important? I think big data refers to a shift in the way in which data is collected and um, behavior is tracked in everyday life. Because through most of the history of the social sciences, which can be dated back to the 17th century, really, in order to develop a um, a knowledge about um, what people are doing, about how the economy is changing, about the size of the population or shifts in the population and so on, you had to employ certain experts who had Uh, special methods and uh, survey devices and um, model building tools and so on to go out there and to uh, produce this knowledge and that they were trusted by policymakers and the public in order to do so. What changes as a result of digitization primarily is that we're leaving a trail of data wherever we go the whole time. So every time we use the internet, every time we use a loyalty card, every time we uh, use an Oyster card or whatever it might be, we're constantly leaving a trail of data behind us. Uh, So there's no need for anyone to actually come and ask us any questions or to pull out some kind of measuring device or a survey tool or anything like that. It's being accumulated by default. Um, and this has various implications. One is that it is there is far more of it than there was of that more traditional form of statistical and, and scientific knowledge, and that's why it's called big data. Is because uh, there's there's so much of it. But also the fact that it 
is uh, somewhat messier, um, harder to access, um, and harder to make sense of in many ways. And therefore, it lends itself to algorithmic analysis um, and to analysis by a, a different type of expert. And so what kind of expert are you talking about there? The sort of people who can understand algorithms, or are you talking about something even more intangible? Well, that? I mean, I think many of the people that develop the data analytics tools to actually try and Pull, pull some sense out of these uh, very large uh, data sets that are emerging at the moment, uh, have backgrounds in physics and, and mathematics. So, And it, it, we saw this also in with the development of, of, of derivatives and um, new calculative tools on Wall Street, was that it was these what were called quants, people often with backgrounds in maths and physics, who had the skills in order to try and analyse uh, and predict different price movements and so on. Um, and so effectively you're studying the social world uh, on the you Using tools that are really completely oblivious to the fact that these are human beings at all. Really, you're 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 studying the economy and society in the same way that you might study um, movements of of, of of physical matter or or um, you know bacteria or something like that. So in that respect, it represents rather a challenge to the social sciences and to economics um, and to traditional conceptions of st statistics um, because it's not there's no there's no theory at the heart of it of 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 of, of the people who you're trying to study. And I mean, there was a very famous um, article published by Chris Anderson in Wired magazine in around about 2008, I think, called The End of Theory. Uh, and although it was a bit overblown, I think what it was getting at was something which was quite significant in terms of um, the future of the social sciences and economics, which is that nowadays, you don't need to frame your uh, analysis of, of human behavior or of, of society on the basis of some kind of preconception, which is what all, all methodologies have a, have a preconception about uh, human beings in some way, whether it be their psychology and economics or uh, about the nature of relationships in sociology and so on. Um, data analytics simply goes goes to where the data has been accumulated and uh, develops algorithms in order to try and spot patterns in uh, in, in very large data sets. And, uh, and obviously, this hugely empowers the companies, as it, and it tends to be companies, that have the best access to all of this. That's fascinating. So you talked about this shift from an era when statistics were dominant to an era of big data. I mean, does that mean that the traditional statistics are no good anymore or that the Office for National Statistics, we should just ignore what they say about GDP and the rest of it? No, I think there's no reason to think that we won't need statistics in the future. I think there are various things that, that statistics offers in its traditional liberal sense as embodied by things like the Office of National Statistics. Firstly, um, it's published and it is it is it is produced for the public. Um, this is something that is not true of the kinds of knowledge that Google or Facebook or Tesco Clubcard or anyone like that is producing. So that already is a is a kind of crucial role. Now I know there are kind of open data projects and that sort of thing, which um, which can also uh, contribute to, to public knowledge in that way. But also, I think the thing about statistics is that there's actually an advantage in in having a, a method uh, which and a theory about what you're doing. And I think that, because then you have something that you can criticise. I think that we can talk about what is the right way to measure inequality, what is the right way to measure economic growth. And I know that NEF over the years have done lots of work on alternatives to GDP and that sort of thing. But the point about statistical methods is that they are 
political and they are um, uh, moral in a sense because you necessarily you, when you measure something you're measuring something because you've already decided that it's worth measuring which is why you know the question of should we measure growth or should we measure well-being or um, should we you know should economists be studying paying more attention to to, to inequality these are these are um, questions of of, of, of ethics and questions of politics, and I think that this is something that, that that statisticians can usefully contribute to these kind of debates, and economists can usefully contribute to these debates. So I think the social sciences, in a way, what because big data is now developing larger data sets, it's able to develop more fine-grained analysis of, of data sets and so on. I think it's it's making it clearer in a way that the social sciences have always had these kind of underlying normative agendas that are kind of coming to the to the fore to a greater extent. And I think that particularly in economics at the moment, with in the wake of Thomas Piketty's work and the, the wake of the financial crisis, I think the question of of, of what should e- economics be about and what should economists be studying has been much more publicly discussed than it was before 2008. I think that's a, a healthy thing, and I, I hope that that continues. That's fascinating, and, and it bring, raises the question, doesn't it, of power and, and of who decides what it is that we study or what we learn about society as a result of the data that we have. I mean, in a world of big data where we're all just emitting data constantly and there is no... Uh, arbiter of who decides what what it is we should study. Who does have the power? Where does power lie? The most powerful position in the overall chain of, of, of data acquisition are the people who are closest to the to the to the consumer or the user. Um, so in the case of the internet, this is why Facebook has so much power, is that so much of the time we encounter articles from the um, Daily Telegraph or the BBC and so on. We encounter them via Facebook, and Facebook is is the gatekeeper to these um, content producers, to to put it in the, the sort of digital terms. Equally, the reason Amazon and 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 Apple and everyone want to get these voice recognition tools into our homes is that that means that when we notice that the um, toilet cleaner has run out and we just suddenly go toilet cleaner in our bathroom, which is the kind of future that they that they're trying to construct, they will be the gatekeepers to that. Uh, to that preference, and they will be able to then uh, have control over the, the, the other areas of the of of, of the um, uh, the supply chain and the the price ultimately of what they can charge wholesalers for for these things is because they have complete control over the demand, in, or they have access access to the demand. And so th- this is this is the one of the great worries is that um, so much of the time we're the the brokers through which we are. Uh, Leaving our data behind are actually a very small collection of companies. So it's you know it's uh, Apple and Amazon and Google and Facebook and so on. So there is a kind of problem of monopoly here. Um, I think that governments will invariably try to exploit some of this to, to whatever extent they can, particularly in relation to questions of security and border control and so on. I mean, in a way, the, the Edward Snowden revelations um, demonstrated that that actually the division between the, the state and the private sector here was actually kind of illusory, basically, um, which is really no surprise. I mean, the state, the state's, I mean, the the, the Function of sovereignty is to deliver security at, at nearly all costs, and you can't, in a sense, you know, from the state's perspective, you can't have kind of Vodafone and and, and Google and uh, whoever it might be sitting on reams of data that might reveal future terrorist risks, and not make some effort to try and access that data and do something with it. Um, so, in a way, that's not to defend kind of what the NSA were doing, but in a way, it shouldn't really have been a surprise to discover that actually Silicon Valley and Washington D.C. were were, were in that kind of alliance. So, the state has a role 
role to play here. And I think that ultimately the, the promise of big data depends entirely on what your practical agenda is. And if your agenda is, is profit, um, you will mine these data sets in search of looking for particularly valuable consumers to market at and to market at them in particular ways and so on. If your um, uh, concern is to spot patterns in particular movements of people that might be a signal of future terrorist activity, you want somehow to be able to discover that instead and to, to know about it before, um, uh, you know, as someone crosses a border. Um, is there a sort of slightly less dystopian version of this vision, um, a version where in the old days, statistics, uh, what we studied, what we looked at and when we looked at society was decided by an elite and now there is uh, such a vast amount of data coming from so many people that that data has become, in a sense, more democratic. I mean, is there something, something to be said for that? Well, that all depends on, on the openness of the data, obviously. And, and it's not, we shouldn't underestimate how, how valuable some of these open data projects are. And um, I think, the, in a way, the, the, the data that is produced that, that we call big data is, is very raw. It's very, it doesn't, it's, it, you know, it requires um, a lot of work in order to extract some kind of meaningful narrative out of it. And I think that as data sets are, are made open in various ways, I think that that allows people to, to, to analyze them in, 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 in plural ways. So it may, in a way, you know, there is no truth in big data. There are just sort of competing narratives that can be kind of extracted from it, which, and they will be extracted in ways that suit the, the interests of, of, of those who are doing so. There is a lot of money to be made from it. And there are particularly high salaries for people who if you've got a PhD in, in, in the right kind of mathematics or physics, uh, you can, you know, there, there is a there is a, a certain um, allure to going and taking that those skills to Wall Street or to Facebook. I mean, Facebook uh, now recruits directly from the American Sociological Association annual conference where there's a lot of so there's always been a lot of social network analysis in American sociology, which is quite a mathematical tradition. And Facebook turns up with a bus and it you know, drives people to their campus and says, you know, <laughs> you don't want to earn sort of, you know, $70,000 a year at that university, come and, come and, come and join us. So there's a sort of, uh, there's a bit of a kind of land grab of, of, of expertise in that respect, I think. And um, uh, arguably, you could say a bit of a privatization of, of knowledge production. Mm. But it's also worth recognizing that, that apart from the digital aspect of this story and the, the sort of G-Wiz devices like um, uh, some of the you know smartphones and that kind of thing, that companies have been doing a lot of this sort of work since the uh, really since the kind of 1880s or so. Uh, you had the first business schools in in the United States in the 1870s, and the first quantitative market research projects in the early 20th century, and and so on. So in a way. Businesses seeking competitive advantage through the accumulation of quantitative data is not in itself a new story or a new problem. I think that it's the fact that thanks to things like smartphones and thanks to platforms such as Facebook, that the gatekeepers to a lot of this are, are, are becoming much more concentrated and potentially much more powerful. How the Uber system works. The Uber system allows riders to request drivers at any time, in any city where Uber has launched. The experience begins when a rider requests a trip. The closest driver to that rider automatically receives the trip request and has 15 seconds to accept. Once they have accepted- What's up you guys? So I started driving for Lyft and Uber in roughly the end of 2014. I honestly think that when you factor in not only how much you can make per hour, but the depreciation on your car, the expenses that you have to spend, you know, the fact that you're an independent contract, you have to pay more taxes. I don't know if you can make a lot of money, you might just barely break even. 
You touched there on the uh, world of work and how big data is starting to impact the world of work. I think that's a very good time to bring in our extra guests uh, this week. Uh, joining us now to reflect on what we just heard, uh, the New Economics Foundation's very own Principal Director of Unions and Business, Stefan Baskerville, and Alice Martin, who leads our work on the labour market. Hello, Stefan and Alice. Hello. Hiya. Thank you very much for joining us. Now, you both work in workplaces with people who work uh, in the modern economy where big data is starting to have this big effect. Do either of you have some reflections on what you just heard or, or whether that chimes with your own experience of how people are experiencing life? Yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's really interesting. And we're definitely aware of lots of cases where people are working for digital platforms increasingly, whether it's Deliveroo or Uber, and are having performance data collected constantly. Again, performance data is, is, is not a new thing with the collection of performance data. Employers have been doing that for a long time, but the efficiency with which they can now do it, because all transactions and all jobs are taken through an app, the employer can literally measure the seconds it takes you to respond to a request, to get through the door of a restaurant, to rate the person that you just, just did the job for. And all of this is kind of accumulated throughout the week and workers are then ranked often at the end of the week and, and kind of set against each other to show them how well they're performing in their job. And what we're particularly interested in is the, some of the kind of psychological effects that, that this type of data collection and, and use has on people in, in the workplace. Stefan, what about you? I think I view it not just as a, an issue that uh, is about digital platform employers, because we're seeing some of those kinds of monitoring and surveillance te techniques also being introduced into other areas of the economy that you might consider to be more uh, more old-fashioned. So, you know, the senior union officials who've told us about the warehouse warehouses in Northern England that are really about the distribution of products, but the combination of kind of insecure employment practices um, combined with the use of kind of wearable digital trackers and CCTV cameras uh, and surveillance checks during the day um, and no mediation of what the appropriate required rate of work is means that actually it's not just psychological effects people people suffer, it's also physical effects. So mm. people are, you know, ambulances are being called out on a regular basis to distribution warehouses in the north of England to pick up workers who sustain physical injuries because of the pick rates that are expected of them to pull cardboard boxes mm. off the shelf and get the products out and and I guess not to get too dystopian about it but I think there is also uh, I mean it is worth considering what might happen if these trends also uh, move into into kind of white collar jobs so you know there was a case of um, of uh, kind of software introduced at the offices of the Daily Telegraph which monitored where, how long journalists were sitting at their desks mm. and I understand that after some intervention by the National Union of Journalists I think the those uh, monitors have now been removed but uh, you, you can kind of foresee a future of work where the creation of digital data is routine in all, in all parts mm. of the economy and does create the possibility of that kind of monitoring and surveillance for most workers and if you if you look at the trends about power in the workplace at the moment which is that actually we're seeing a decline in the power of the ordinary worker vis-a-vis -vis the kind of employer that they work for there is the possibility there that there, there will be no mediation of these these kinds of processes and and I guess that that leads me to a kind of really urgent question which is like what what are the means that we have at our disposal to begin organizing for some power so that this process is mediated and negotiated not imposed I think we should come to that that very urgent question as you quite rightly defined but I just want to ask will uh, does this 
image that Stefan and Alice are painting, um, does that strike you as think that things have got a lot worse in the workplace than, say, 100 years ago when there were other management techniques and there were other mm. ways of looking at performance data and trying to maximise efficiency? Or what do you think? I mean, I think, so clearly one thing which which you're both saying is that the, the the means of surveillance have got a lot more efficient in many ways. They've got a lot cheaper. It's a lot easier to find out what someone's up mm-hmm. to. Um, and there's a there's another problem, which is that the sort of the the, the subtlety of, of surveillance is also increasing. So it's not just quantity; it's also quality. Actually, so I mean, there's a there's a company because I've been quite interested in, in what's called affective computing, which is the attempt to try and measure people's emotions via sort of algorithmically. And so there's, there's a company called Beyond Verbal, which monitors um, emotions in someone's tone of voice. You know, a bit like how you can you can now have uh, market research technologies which can try and sense what mood someone's in from their face and that sort of thing. And um, this is designed to go into places like call centres, to go talk about your sort of example of white-collar surveillance. Call centres, you know, people have to make a certain number of calls in an hour, but also they have to also give a certain level of of, of customer satisfaction. I mean, I once rang, uh, it was actually a, a local council, um, to talk about something. And later I got, a, I got a, um, a, a message from the council, not asking me how happy I was, but ha- asking me how happy the employee had seemed in order to serve me. Uh, so sort of using this as a sort of weird kind of, you know, reverse <laughs> surveillance device in a way. So there's a lot of that sort of stuff going on. Um, is it is it worse? Well, I mean, it's it's worse in, in the sense that it's much more pervasive, as, as, as you've pointed out. I mean, I think we have to distinguish a little bit between normally when we talk about big data, uh, to me anyway, you would talk about things that can be accumulated by default. So something like the delivery driver would be closer to what I would mean by big data, whereas a lot of this stuff is just a, a sort of rollout of a surveillance infrastructure that is being rolled out purely in order to try and monitor people and drive them to work harder, which is not, you know, delivery happens to be platform-based. So it does, there's, I mean, it's, a, it's a subtle difference, but it's but you see what I mean, I think. And I think that, so is it worse? Well, yes, it's worse. I think the, the, as the surveillance aspects are worse. I suppose there are workplaces which would hopefully marry this to um, more kind of benevolent um, forms of HR at the same time, which perhaps weren't there in the in, in, in you know in the 1920s when when Frederick Taylor's ideas were kind of all powerful. But um, I suppose you know it, it all depends on where, as, as, you, as you're saying about power. I mean, it's it's all about where you are in in the labour market because in a way you know when you've got your sort of corner office in a in a in a skyscraper, no one's going to be keeping tabs on you. Somewhere in the middle, there's a sort of people who probably get a mixture, sort of bit of carrot and a bit of stick, whereas the, the the story of these kind of warehouses of, of, of people being worked until they're sick, it's, it's just all stick. You know, what's the incentive in a way? It's rather sort of mm. naive as a as a behavioural model to just mm. think that you can sort of punish people endlessly into work. But it partly depends on, on, on whether there's anything better available, I assume. Can I just pick up on, on the issue of accountability? So you mentioned this shift from statistics to big data, meaning that there is no theory necessarily be behind what's collected and not even a theory behind how it's analysed, that mm. algorithms just look simply look for patterns. But how does that translate if we're, if we're thinking about big data in the workplace and algorithms are being used to decide who gets work mm. over somebody else? How do we know for sure that there isn't accountability behind or that there is, I mean, and that decisions are being made. For example, favoritism is a big mm. issue among private hire drivers and has been historically. So if you're mates with the boss, you get more jobs. Right. Does uh, an app like Uber 
rule that out? It seems like potentially no, because no. there are other forms of favoritism built into how the work is is distributed. For example, if you're a bit slow to pick up someone mm. one day or you turn down a job, you will be kind of put to the bottom of the pile for, mm. for a job. Um, so, yeah, so where do you think accountability lies in all of this? Well, I think that, I suppose the problem is one thing which is worrying about these developments that we're, we're talking about is that we're being judged, but we don't know what on what terms we're being judged. So, yeah. I mean, you could have a really harsh workplace, but if they nailed the performance evaluation criteria to the notice board and said, right, this is what you've got to do. You've got to, you know, stack more shelves. You've got to do this. You've got to do this. And actually, you might even have your, you know, pay linked to however much you do this, this and this. It might be kind of brutal, but it has a kind of a an accountability mm-hmm. about it because, mm-hmm. you know, it's like the sort of, it's like a constitution. These are the, This is what we believe in and this is how you're going to be judged kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, and I I think that what's worrying about uh, a lot of these things is that we know we're being assessed in certain ways, but we don't know on what basis we're being assessed. So, I mean, this is slightly leaping to a completely different kind of example, but I mean, Facebook has a business patent to develop uh, social network analysis into a credit rating tool so that potentially your ability to get a loan or the terms on which you get a loan, because after all, they want everyone to get a loan nowadays. They just want some of them to be on much better terms than others. Your ability to get a good loan depends partly on who you know. Um, and that would be uh, because they would see your friends as being a very good indication of whether or not you're good for the money, basically. Uh, and, it, you know, empirically, it probably is a good indication. But the question is, do we want to be judged on those mm. sorts of terms now? And, you know, we, most of the time we don't even know we're being judged in these in these sorts of terms, either. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's the same with something like employees of platforms and so on. I saw an idea floated by Ofsted, I don't know if it went anywhere, that they would start doing social media sentiment analysis in order to assess schools, which I think is a sort of quite a, 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 would be a bit frightening to me if I was a head teacher, because who has a clue what is being said about your school on Twitter or Facebook, whatever it is. And in a way, Ofsted probably rather like this idea, because it's quite a, you know, it suggests they've got a a sort of an all encompassing way of, of, of capturing value and, and judgments and opinions and so on. But, you know, it, it, it undermines the transparency and the accountability which goes with uh, the, the scoring system that currently exists, which is already a, quite a, a frightening one. Mm. So if you're, if you're one of these head teachers or a, a delivery driver or a shelf stacker in a warehouse in Northern England, what are your strategies for resisting this kind of thing? I'll, I'll turn to you, Stefan, on this because you raised this earlier. I mean, what, what can people do if they feel that uh, data is being used in a way to monitor them to the extent that their lives are, be- are being harmed as a result. What can people do? Ultimately, the, the answer has to be about organising for um, power, for the capacity to take some action uh, and to develop mechanisms of accountability. I think ultimately that does mean that people need to join up and share their experiences And we're going to have to think really creatively, I think, as a society about how we put the mechanisms in place to do that. So there's an example of um, from the United States of a a tech platform called coworker.org. It's a means of workers in disparate workplaces, but working for the same employer, identifying workplace issues and taking action. Starbucks committed to end the practice of clopenings, which is where you get allocated as a worker to a closing shift and an opening shift. Clopenings. Clopenings, yeah. You get allocated to a, a closing shift, followed by an opening shift and you haven't got time to go home between 11.30 at night and 4.30 the next morning and sleep. And Starbucks committed to end the practice, but uh, but for some reason workers were still being allocated these shifts. And through, uh, the, through the platform, through coworker.org, they... Um, 
analyzed the big data, uh, looked at where workers were being uh, allocated these clopening shifts, and it turns out they were all being allocated on a Sunday night to a Monday morning. And so the algorithm that Starbucks was using to allocate shifts amongst its workforce was operating on a Monday to Sunday calendar, couldn't figure out for itself that it was tripping from a, the begin, end of one calendar into the beginning of the next. And so, and the only way you, we've ended up with a position where we could hold the algorithm accountable was through identifying the experience of the worker. So I think actually the people on the front line are the people who have the experience that allows you to know whether or not the algorithm is working. And we're going to need a mix of new technology like platforms to help identify that knowledge. We're also going to need age-old techniques of organising to bring people together in institutions that give them the power to act and ultimately to, uh, to win legislative change or regulatory change that puts in place mechanisms to hold, hold these things accountable. Alice, does that sound feasible? Um, I think it sounds uh, necessary, and <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm probably a bit of a pessimist in in the, <laughs> in this topic, but I certainly think that that the strategy needs to be looking at ways to to join forces and to potentially use platforms as well to fight back a little bit. So whether it's allowing for portability between different platforms so being being more in control of your own data and where that ends up um, having kind of licensing systems over how your data is used um, there are lots of ideas out there uh, I think it will come down to power at the end of the day <laughs> in terms of whether they get put in place or actioned so power is everything I think that's what we've learned this evening well thank you so much Alice and thank you Stefan and a special thanks to Will Davies for joining us this week thank you and I'm sure we'll have you on again soon thank you